Bada bing, bada boom. There we go. I look like ass. <laughs> I look truly terrible. I look truly terrible, but uh, I'm here. It's uh, We got it going on. Hi, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. It is officially 3.04 p.m. East Coast time on the 4th of January, 2024. Can you believe it? We have made it here. First of January. Well, not the first of January. First of the year. Uh, first month of the year. First show of uh, the year. First live chat of the year. Glad you're here. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Two weeks off. Uh, finally, a couple of weeks where I was able to go and watch other things other than MMA stuff. I was able to watch a bunch of movies. I read some uh, I finished some books is a better way to put it. Started some new ones. So it was actually really good that I was able to do that. Um, it was a good time. I actually enjoyed my break. I hope you did as well. Let's see. On the chat today, I'm sure we're going to get to Sean Strickland. I'm sure we're going to get to some UFC 300 stuff, maybe some one financial news. Three of their C-suite executives quit today, or at least this week, something like that, all in one go. That's bad. When the top leadership is all being like, yeah, we're good here. That's not a great sign. Not a great sign. So we'll get to some of that and a whole lot more. Thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. I have pumped this into my Facebook feed, a Facebook page I don't really use as much as I probably should. So if you're watching on Facebook, hello. Um, I could send it to Instagram, but the problem is it cuts off after a, uh, uh, an hour, so it doesn't really do me a whole lot of good. But I may end up sending it to Twitter at some point, so we'll see how that goes. In any case, thank you for joining me. Thumbs up on the uh, video if you're watching on YouTube. Hit subscribe if you, hasn't, if you haven't. It's free. We'll go for about an hour on the free questions, and then if you have any donations, we'll get to those at the end and answer any questions associated with them. Let's see very quickly if we can. Uh, also, you can look down there. If you want to become a member, you can, which means you don't have to donate anything to get a question asked, blah, 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 all that good stuff. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, bada, bada, bada. I answered most of the emails that folks sent over the break that I had to get back to. I don't know if I got to all of them, but I got to a bunch. I spent like a couple of hours just going through all of them. So I hope you got to them. If you didn't, I apologize, but I really made a big, big effort on that. Was supposed to get content up, in fact, did record it, and then realized I lost sound after 11 minutes and just didn't want to re-record it. So that'll get recorded probably tomorrow morning and then up. I have a breakdown coming on some of the good and some of the bad of Patty Pimblett. That should be a good little time. All right, with that out of the way, let's get this party started, shall we? Uh, first live chat of the year. Let's go. Okay, okay. We'll turn this off. And then, yeah, this is ready to go. Yes. And then let's throw this Bama on here. And then we'll do it like that. The way I sort of prefer it to be. Okay. First one up here from a dude named Sam Raphael or Raphael. I don't know how you pronounce it, but in any event, he says, ostensibly, any movies that you've watched that have had a strong emotional impact on you? Just watched the, excuse me, just watched Grave of the Fireflies uh, a few months ago, and it's the first movie to ever make me properly tear up. Highly recommend it. Love the work that you do. Uh, well, appreciate it, Sam. Thank you for the question. Um, I can tell you that over the break, I saw, uh, these didn't emotionally make me tear up, but I have seen over the break, I quickly, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon, the Scorsese movie. I thought it was great. Um, I, I like Scorsese. I don't love Scorsese like some folks do, but I really like him. I really respect him. I really enjoyed Killers of the Flower Moon. But in particular, I thought that DiCaprio's performance, I was not expecting him to be as good as he was. I kind of felt like any showdown with De Niro, De Niro would be better. No. Well, De Niro was good, obviously. But 
DiCaprio was really good in this movie. This is like, for me personally, up there, not quite on the same level with What's Eating Gilbert Grape, but um, pretty good. Then I saw Oppenheimer, which I also really liked, but there's this kind of call and response style of um, dialogue, which is a little bit off-putting. But other than that, it was an exceptional film. I loved it. I saw Barbie. Didn't love it, but didn't hate it. actually liked it. I thought it was pretty good. I thought some of the hand-wringing over some of it was dumb. Uh, it's it's a good movie. Um, you know, again, I wouldn't it, for me it wasn't on par with the other two. But you're asking about like, have I had an emotional response? Sure. Uh, first time I saw Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima is a movie. It has a sister movie called Flags of Our Fathers. Flags of Our Fathers is like a billion times worse than Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima takes place. Iwo Jima was obviously was one of the islands and one of the major battles in World War II, and it actually follows. A, uh, a Japanese soldier who was writing home to his family about what was happening to them at, at Iwo Jima, and they were uh, they were getting their asses kicked, they were getting dysentery, they were all obviously all getting sick as a consequence. Uh, they were being starved out. You have to understand something about the American military, World War II. Here's here's really what separates us from the Japanese. The Japanese were able to create really, really good excellent officers and soldiers uh, when they were making when they were producing troops in peacetime they were able they're, they're, in other words the first round so to speak of um, their leadership were excellent but as time wore on and they got killed and they had to go to replacements and you see this in letters from Iwo Jima they had to go to anybody they could find on the street bakers plumbers you name it. in fact the guy who was writing the letters in letters from Iwo Jima was a baker and just some guy they threw on the fucking front lines. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't want to be there. You know, it's a whole thing. Um, the Americans were successful. And I've talked about this before. The Americans were successful because even when they lost their first round of excellent officers and excellent soldiers, they were able to recreate them through basic training and MOS training and then send them out to the front lines. So like they could make new ones who were very, very good, much quicker than the Japanese. And this ended up, among other factors, having a big role um, in the Pacific theater and in World War II overall. It was a huge, huge determining factor. The Americans, it turns out, were very, very good at just getting someone basically trained up very quickly. The Japanese, it turns out, were not. So this is at the very end of where, where Iwo Jima was about to fall. And uh, it's from the Japanese perspective when they were, like, completely fucked. And... Uh, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult movie to watch. It's really, really, it's a hard one, um, to take in. Um, but you know what? You can make fun of me for it. Like even stuff now that I'm a little bit older, like the first time I saw Coco, you've seen the Pixar movie Coco where he goes, he has this whole adventure and then he goes back to his, uh, I think that was his great grandmother and tries to sing to her to get her to remember, dude, it's touching. It's touching. You know, I, I, I don't know that everyone felt the same way that I did about that, but um, it got me a little bit. Yeah, it sure did. It really got me a little bit. But the last one that really kind of got me was uh, was Letters from Iwo Jima and just to see the sort of despair and destruction that war brings to people who least want it or least deserve it. Pretty incredible. Here we go. Strategically speaking, if you are Nick sick, what is Sean's game plan for DDP? Dude, what a great question. Also, what would you advise DDP to do against Sean? Well, DDP said something um, that I thought really was correct. I, I, by the way, I think, what are the odds on that one? 
Do we have them yet? I think... We, let's see. What are the odds on... They have Sean as a slight favorite, and that might switch between now and then. So Sean's at about, give or take, minus 125, and DDP is about, give or take, plus 105. Boy, that's a very close fight, man. That's a really close fight. One thing I think DDP has said that rings to me very true, very very smart, is that, and this happened to Izzy when, when Izzy and Sean fought, was that Izzy ended up fighting at Sean's pace. Where it's like block, 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 cover, 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 and then you can go and retaliate on the exit or whatever you want to do. And now, like you're you're fighting in a way where it's comfortable for Sean uh, and, and a rhythm that he's used to, or at least much more nimble at. And DDP was like, "We well, have to take all that away. You have to put pressure on him," which he's naturally going to do with just about anybody he fights anyway. But would make a lot of sense with Sean. You cannot give uh, Sean time to settle, bring the fight down to its pace where he's blocking, slowing it down, making you really reconsider. You kind of have to go. And DDP is good for that, right? I mean, if you think about anybody who's good to break up the rhythm that way, anybody who's good to, you know, even if they have to make a mistake or take some punishment along the way to disrupt rhythm, DDP's very good for that. That's a tough thing for Sean to overcome, I think. Man, what a great question. If you're Nick Sick, I haven't asked Eric about this. Uh, I talked to him last week, actually. He called me with a funny story. I'll have to tell you guys that one day. But, um, yeah, I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I haven't done enough tape study on DDP to get a real good read on it. The only one I've done was the one he did over Whitaker uh, because I got that one so badly wrong that I wanted to, uh, you guys know the story, I wanted to make sure that I understood exactly what I had missed in that one. But if you're Sean, I think takedown defense is going to be a key part of it. Um, man, I think if you're Sean as well, I think if you're spending a lot of time on your heels, that's going to be a bad place to be. You're going to have to find a way to jab your way forward. You're going to have to find a way to put DDP on his heels. If DDP is the one coming forward, pressuring you, limiting your range of options, limiting the real estate, that's a... That's a, and then again, forcing his pace on it simultaneously. That's a tough fight to win. It's a great question. I'd have to think a little bit more about it and do a little bit more tape study. I don't have quite enough to give you now. I don't think he can play the same game he played with Izzy. You know, cover, cover, raise your leg up, blah, blah, blah. I don't think he can really do that um, and get away with it. Izzy is, is, Izzy's much more inclined to... Um, you know, touch and go, stab and go. DDP's a little bit more rough and tumble. He doesn't fight that kind of way. So I don't think that strategy is going to be as effective with him. Um, but Sean does have good takedown defense historically. Obviously, he's extremely experienced. He's going to have a phenomenal gas tank. Um, it might be one of those fights where it's a little bit rope-a-dope early, right? Kind of absorb pressure and then turn the tide on him later. But I guess we'll have to see. It's a great question. I, I, I aim to give you a better answer over time. All right, here we go. Uh, hey, Luke, has your opinion of Strickland changed since watching his recent conversation with Theo Vaughn? For me, it was challenging to pro uh, process. I almost turned it off in the first half because I couldn't identify with Sean's viewpoints. And the discussion was a complete mess. My heart broke for him at the 90-minute mark, though, when the conversation finally felt honest. What did you take away from the podcast? All right, so... 
Um, I have not listened to the whole thing. I've listened to about a solid 10 minutes of it, including the moment you're referring to where there's this switch that ends up happening. Um, I'm actually... Uh, is where we're going to put this. I'm, I'm sort of glad that this whole thing has happened and happened in the way that it has, which is it has laid bare the obvious truth, but I think maybe not obvious to everybody, but the, the clear and certain truth that there are so many lies that we tell, certainly in the sport and beyond, but in the sport about um, what strength is, so many lies we tell about who we are, so many lies, we, so many lies we tell about our identity and what formed it and everything else. I want to show you guys something. I, I had Someone sent this to me, um, and I thought this was like really instructive to help me understand something. Let me show it to you here, if I may. And it's the following. So this is what Sean, real quickly. So this is what Sean wrote or had tweeted uh, about Khalil Roundtree, right? You can see it there, all right? And he's making fun of him. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he goes into a bunch of like homophobic stuff. Gayest uh, shit I've ever seen, and I love bi women. So I've seen a lot of, you know, he goes on and on and on. He goes, yeah, you're really special, a special little snowflake. This man is the definition of PC beta male. I mean, the guy's a pro fighter, but okay. You would all hate him. Seriously, being in the same room as him makes me cringe. Let me ask you all a basic question. Why did he say this? Right? Why did he say that? I don't mean like, why did he get to Twitter and then do it like that way? Although that's, that's part of the equation too. But why did he say what he said? The answer is actually quite obvious. It's because that's what somebody did to him. Somebody along the way, probably his father, but who knows if it's anyone more than that. I don't know. I'm, I'm merely speculating. <coughs> Someone, when he was a child, and he showed vulnerability, as any child is going to do, often, and in ways that almost are desperate, someone made him feel bad for that. Someone scolded him for that. Someone probably beat him for that. Someone made him feel like that. And he turns around and then does it to other people. Like, you ever seen a child? Like, you ever seen these, they've done these documentaries. They'll go to some bumfuck place in the country and they'll interview some kid who's like eight or nine years old and his parents are in the clan and he's just sort of repeating all this insanely racist shit that they have to say. Like, he didn't come up with that on his own. Children, children are observant copiers of everything that you do. Right, That is really what the truth is. It's not so much what you tell them, although that can matter to some degree, in some cases very importantly. But more than anything else, they're just going to look at you and they're going to observe what you do. And they're just going to repeat it because they don't really know anything else to do. And they'll repeat some of your good and they'll repeat some of your bad as well. Somebody did that to him. Somebody, when he was younger, made him feel terrible for it that, that not only did you should you not show that but that now your job is to police the ranks of perceived masculinity around you or perceived emotional control around you and what you should feel because what he felt at that moment it happened to him when he was younger is is shame you should feel shame for these difficult emotions you should feel shame for um, whatever it was that Khalil Roundtree was dealing with in that particular moment. Someone did it to him. 
this is what they mean when when they talk about repeating the cycles of either violence or maladaptive behavior or whatever else. It is descended from what was given to you. And so here's the opinion I sort of came to. Like, I will be honest about this. Like, I have had a hard time even listening to anything Sean says because he's got a worldview that is deeply, profoundly, utterly broken. But I will say that he's, his story that he told where he had to be up till 3 a.m., all the time because his dad would come home drunk and he's beating on his mom or he's just, you know, yelling and screaming and doing whatever else he's doing. And then he can't sleep and then he has to go to school and now he's falling asleep at his desk and then the teacher then removes his desk and he falls asleep and now, like, all the problems cascade into other parts of your life. People think that if you have a bad household, you can get you can escape it in this place and you can escape it in that place. And sometimes you can, but most of the time you just bring it with you or the world's just intersect in ways you cannot control. I honestly felt deep sadness for him when he when he revealed that story. That is a profoundly abused person. A profoundly abused person. I mean, no child, and I'm sure that's what he had to deal with. When he, uh, he's a grown man now, I understand. And he said horrible shit, I understand. But let's go back to the moment in which this worldview was formed. Dude, no child should ever have to suffer what he suffered. Dude, these are vulnerable impressionable and I don't say weak as like some kind of like insult but I mean fragile these are fragile creatures that you must take extraordinary care to protect and teach and help and he got none of that he got none of that and I've said it a million times dude all these online freaks in any corner you might find them where they are lashing out at the world constantly. Dude, they're, it's such a fucking joke to me, right? I said it on MK yesterday where they've got the smiley face mask on and underneath it's just all tears. Dude, anybody who ritually lashes out at the world in the way Sean has and other folks do, these are people that have had their fucking ass kicked by the world. That is why they do that. That is what they know. They don't know anything, or they might know some of the things, but certainly that is what they know. It's the it's the language that they understand. He understands by virtue of his upbringing. You are to make people feel ashamed for any perceived public weakness, because that is exactly what he got. So I don't I don't want to look the other way on all the horrible shit he has said about any number of things or the crazy things in one direction or the other but do I now have a greater a significantly greater degree of sympathy now that I can understand a little bit more about his story yeah of course man I, I and I know people are like oh he, he look at what he did to this guy it's hypocritical for him to now do this no doubt about it no doubt about it there's simply no denying it but an abused child that grows up without any other form of guidance into an adult, um, you just have to recognize where this all started and you have to understand that was not at the initial juncture anyway. Now is a different story, but at the initial juncture, that was not his fault. And that is a difficult process to undo. It is not a snap your fingers and you grow out of it. You have to process the bad shit that has happened to you in order to get to the other place. And you saw that happen to him in real time where he could not contain his own sadness in front of the cameras 
about what had happened to him. And I felt genuinely terrible for him. Genuinely, my heart went out to him in that moment. I mean, I mean that with absolute sincerity. And I'm going to say it one more time. That doesn't mean I don't think there's any criticism to make of him for the, hypocr- the, the hypocritical way in which he's gone about his life. I understand that too. I'm not One is not divorced from the other. But I just want everyone to know, like this whole thing about people policing words, it's really never been about that. Number one, in MMA, the fighters, not just the fighters, managers and media too, but everyone is so insanely sensitive to words. So when people say, well, words can't hurt you, it's like, dude, no one in this business operates like that. So it's just, it's not a very believable argument to make. Like none of you, if I talk shit about a manager, I'm going to get a phone call about it. And when I say talk shit, I mean like even responsible criticism. I'm going to get a phone call about it, right? Like the UFC, this is a very small little thing, but they don't like me very much. You can tell by the fact that like my tweets never show up on fight night. And of course that's their choice. That's not really the best example. But the point I'm trying to make is like, Fighters, for example, they're the easiest people on earth to troll. I'm not advocating you do that, but it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Why? Because they are incredibly sensitive to certain kinds of words. So it's not, it's just not a credible argument to make that like, this is, these are just words in this industry and you shouldn't care. It's like, dude, none of you believe that. (laughs) None of you even believe that you don't even operate your life that way. So please be serious with me here for a second. But the second part about it is what what we're doing here, this performative cruelty, you're just, you're just allowing, or I should, allowing is not the right word, you're just making room for, why should we make room for all of the awful things that Sean had to experience today? Why at press conferences do we have to make room for this maladaptive behavior? Why do we have to make room for this pain? I don't mean like allowing him to have real moments of, of, of public um, vulnerability. I'm not saying that, but like, why are we giving room to this idea of cruelty that has been handed down to people as a performative form of entertainment? Why are we giving room to that? It's clearly fucked up. It's not good for these people. It's not a personality trait. It's not laudable. It's not healthy. So like this idea that like, well, this is just part of the fight game. No, the fuck it is not. You are making it part because you also have maladaptive fucking behavior. <laughs> and by the way, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. This is a process I have gone through the last 15 years. I, more than that, I am no better either. I, I didn't go through the same suffering that Sean did, but far be it for me to say that I haven't done some of this lashing out at the world before. That's how I know how true it is because I've done this shit, man. And I've had to go to therapy for it and had to like examine some of it. And I'm sure I've not even fixed the problem, but I'm in a better place than I was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. This is, this, this is why this whole thing is so fucking beyond ridiculous. No one actually believes any of the arguments that they're making and then making room for this kind of behavior it is so backwards from what we actually can, should be doing. It's so destructive unnecessarily. And it's like, what do we owe the abusers who created this behavior in the first place that we should continue their lineage? I don't mean as people, but I mean as behavior. What do we owe the people that fucked these people up to continue this? Nothing. We owe them nothing. We owe them absolutely nothing. Nobody owes them anything. So this idea like, well, we should just continue it because that's the unrestrained way. It's the unrestrained lineage of abusive 
people. That's that's your fucking clarion call? That shit? Seriously? Makes no sense. It makes zero fucking sense. We don't want to live in a censorious environment where that word you can't say and this thing you can't say. I I, I understand like there's a there's a there's a there's a again in an unrestrained environment, there's going to be trade-offs positively and negatively. And it's not to make an argument that there are no positive trade-offs having a somewhat unrestrained environment from some kind of uptight environment you could compare it to. That's not really my argument. But what I am trying to say is decency is not some kind of weak trait that we have to um, press upon each other to make everyone feel nice. It is rather a recognition that the abusive shit that was handed down to these people, we do not owe that an audience. We do not owe that a continuation of a process. We do owe, we owe that nothing. In fact, I would argue we owe it rejection. I would argue we owe it repudiation. And it only comes from people who the world has beaten the living shit out of. No one whose parents gave them enough hugs typically does this shit. No one who had good structure, who was helped with their homework, who was driven to school, who had clean and new clothes at the beginning of every school year, who had friends, who had a social circle, who had supportive parents, they don't go do that shit. It's the people who lacked those things. Why on earth are we saying it's entertainment and it's good for us to continue the legacy of that fucked up shit? Put a stop to it, bro. Put a stop to it. You can you can be mean in the fight game much more than you can be in regular society, and we just have to kind of live with it. And I don't expect everyone to have a kumbaya and come together moment with it. But what I am asking for is do not treat human trauma, not so much as entertainment, but as like an authentic version of ourselves. There's nothing authentic about it. In fact, if you have arrived at a position where this is your natural course of thinking, you are off course. And I think what's happened to Sean a little bit here is as he's getting older, a little bit more money, a lot more success, He's got a positive environment around him. Eric Nixick, I think, is a very um, uh, um, level-headed guy who's trying to foster a positive environment for the people who come through his door, and I, I understand and respect that. I think it takes the right kind of guy to do that. I think these things are making Sean, um, and I don't know him, I'm guessing here, begin to grapple with what has happened to him. And as a consequence, you can see he can't even literally control it anymore. He literally cannot control it. Um, so if you want to be mad at him for being a hypocrite, I understand that. I, you know, I don't think that there he he should be um he should be free from criticism for all the, you know, he said some horrible shit and continues to. And I'm, I'm sure he will in the future too. You know, and on that level, I don't feel sympathy for him on that particular thing. But hearing his stories. Like the real nitty gritty details and seeing the downstream effects of how it fucked up so many parts of his life and people think that that's a fun personality. Get fucked. You're so wrong. You're so fucking wrong. And it's not just him, dude. MMA is filled with people like this who have never treated what has happened to them and it just becomes their person. Like they just make being unpleasant a personality. Dude, the world beat your fucking ass. And I can see right through it. The world kicked your ass. I don't know how it did. I don't know if some girl broke your heart or, you know, whatever. 
uh, or dude broke your heart or whatever, or you grew up poor and you got made fun of, or who knows? Everyone's got a story to tell. I don't know. Some are worse than others. But everyone lashing out at the world like this as some kind of sign of strength. Dude, you're lashing out because the world fucked your shit up. And I can see right through it. (laughs) It's so obvious. Uh, And this, to me, has been a very instructive moment in that. Dude, Sean Strickland got done wrong by the world, man. He did. In his early life, he got done wrong by the world. As an adult, he has to take responsibility for the choices he makes thereafter. But up until that point, as a child, as a child, he got his ass kicked by the world. And if it goes untreated, it turns into this. Um, I hope for his sake and everyone else that he can get um, the kind of peace and the kind of understanding that um, any abused child who grows up into an adult is, 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 uh, is owed. Is owed, but he has to go and get it. He can't keep doubling down on these mistakes. He can't keep doubling down on, you know, some of these things that he says. So, yeah, man, his story is fucking tragic. It's it's horrific. It's horrific. Um, it's up to him now to fix it. And it's not fair either. That's the other part too. Like, what part of this is fair? Nothing. The world is a cruel and unfair place. Deeply so. Profoundly. Um, but you got to do it, man. You got to do it. And I think it's starting to dawn on him that this is the case. This is just a fight game. This is just how guys are. No. No, it's not. None of this is the way it is. Luke, what fighters have surprised you the most by the level of skill they displayed in a coming out performance? For me, I didn't rate Luke Rockhold before his vicious annihilation of Weidman. The speed of his ground and pound put Weidman on death's door with shock. Boy, he had breakout performances before that. I would have said the Jacare performance was a breakout one. Um, That would be a good one. Let me think of some other breakout performances. Uh, I would say, yeah, GSP over Frank Trigg. You guys hear me talk about that one all the time. I would say... Diego Sanchez over Car Parisian. You could also throw Joe Riggs in there if you wanted to. What are some other good ones that really stood out? Um, it was a title fight, so it wasn't so much a coming out party, but like in terms of disrupting the established order, you guys ever seen RDA's beatdown of Anthony Pettis? So this is Anthony Pettis fresh off of being on a box of Wheaties, and RDA went in there and he he took it to him. He took it to him. There was a reestablishment of the order in that particular case. Um, still waiting on Bo Nichols. I think uh, f- I think B- uh, Brock Lesnar beating Heath Herring the way he did was a big one. Um, man, you could go back to a bunch of them. There's a whole there's a whole shit ton of them. Um, in Pride, I'd probably say Rampage beating Chuck was a big one, but then also Vanderlei beating him twice was kind of big. Breakout performances. I'm trying to think like someone like on the rise. John Jones has had a million of them. The Matt Yushchenko one was big. The Brandon Vera one was big. You would have said the Matt Hamill one, but of course it has the controversy associated with it. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody who I doubted. I mean, DDP beating Robert Whitaker was a great one. Sean beating Izzy. These are huge performances. Again, some of them are, are these are more advanced fighters in more advanced stages, but the coward just blew your mind about how, how good they were. But Rockhold had a few of those, man. Rockhold, Rockhold you know, obviously he got... Uh, beat by this being in the end, but the first time they fought in Australia and he one-armed guillotined him. I mean, that was, that was fucking impressive. And he had, he had a few of those. 
I get this question a fair amount, but I don't really know. Okay, so Luke, what do you think is the worst case scenario for the UFC during slash after the fighter lawsuit in the event they have to pay $3 billion plus damages? Will it force them to shut the doors? Here's some good news for everyone. Number one, I don't think we're going to get to any kind of resolution anytime soon because even if the UFC loses badly in an April trial, there will be there's another trial that will have to come where I think um, you know the real kind of injunctive relief will have to come from. I think the, the plaintiffs punted on the Lee case having injunctive relief, which is where they would change the contracts if they won. And that won't happen until the Cajun Johnson case. So that's a ways off, even if it happens. Even if they lose on all the financial damages, so let's say they end up having to pay around $5 billion. That sounds like a lot, but the UFC is good for it. The UFC is, they, they, they can, or Endeavor or whatever, they, they can do that. They can do that. That's not really the end of the world. I mean, that wouldn't be great, but that's not, that's not going to have them, to your point, it's not going to have them shut the doors. Really, the only thing that could really hurt them is um, some kind of change, a regulatory change to the way in which they do business. If it shortens contracts or whatever, something along those lines where they're no longer able to establish practices as they have in terms of retaining uh, talent. If talent is able to be more mobile because the contracts are by, by law shorter, that would be a worst case scenario for them because it wouldn't put them out of business. They would still be in business to do great business, but it would make the ability for the competitors out there, PFL, whoever ends up existing, uh, it would make them far more competitive, far more competitive. I've brought this up a million times. PFL, doesn't make money. One looks like it might not even make it out of the year. And Bellator had a corporate pair. Bellator was bought for $50 million back in like 2011 or maybe maybe even before that, something like that, and got sold for basically nothing, stock options, right? They can't make money. The UFC has such a control over the entire industry Understand something. Folks are like, oh, well, they just do business better than everybody else. Well, they they they, they are good at MMA promotion. Like, there's no denying that. But, like, the argument used to be, hey, well, what if we can get more funding for um, this entity? What if we can get them on a great cable television deal? <coughs> people know how to promote fights. Boxing is proof. Lots of people can promote fights. Even Oscar De La Hoya, who's a bit of a donk, can promote fights. Bob Arum is in his fucking 90s, and he's out there in Japan promoting fights. Uh, PBC, it looks like, is going to Amazon. I don't know who's going to run it. I guess it's still Al Heyman, but they can promote fights. Like, bunches of people can promote fights. Like, promoting fights, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's not the truth that only one group on earth can do it. However, if you have a control where the only people who really make you money in MMA are your top five guys, if you have control over the contract such that it's very, very difficult to ever sign, if not impossible, to sign one of them because one entity already has them and it keeps them on their lock and key for very, very long stretches so there's not this free agency period, you can't compete. That's the point. You cannot compete. PFL, if it doesn't get some kind of change to the way in which businesses run in MMA, a regulatory change from a law uh, law enforcement apparatus, not the cops, but uh, but, you know, um, the judicial system or the legislative system, if there isn't some kind of change that happens, they will all go out of business. They cannot make money. You cannot, you cannot, even with a great television deal and great producers and great commentators and a different kind of product, if you're an international class product like those guys are, you cannot make money. It is not possible. You will not succeed. 
you can have a much smaller kind of situation and potentially do well. I don't know what KSW's financials look like, but you know that's up there as well. But you get the idea. Um, so like, un- this is why the UFC is probably not necessarily all that concerned because there's many layers of judicial response that they have in the event that even injunctive relief gets granted, which it may never get granted. And if they have to pay five billion, they could pay five billion. It wouldn't. It would suck, but they could do it. They've won. I want everyone to understand that. They've won. They've won. There is no defeating them. There is no out-competing them. There, it, you cannot grow a different set of fighters, even if they're all better than the ones in the UFC. You cannot do that and turn that into a product that the people believe are those are the guys. It doesn't work. It's not possible. I saw Gary Shaw try it. I saw IFL try it. I saw Sengoku try it. I saw Dream try it. I've seen Bellator try it. I've been watching PFL try it. I've watched one try it. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. You have to get access to the very top guys or you're going out of business. It's really as simple as that. So, yeah. Happy to hear Anatoly Malikin get praise on MK. It is scary that he has never been to decision either as a pro or an amateur. Jesus, yeah. Even Shavkat lost twice to the same fighter but had more fights in the amateurs. He's a devastating puncher, true. Decorated wrestler, grappler, true. Extremely agile for heavyweight. A little on the smaller side, but yes. How do you fare, fare if you, how do you think he would fare if he went to the UFC? I got to tell you, potentially one of the most exciting fights you could make at heavyweight is Tom Aspinall versus Anatoly Malikin. Anatoly Malikin is unbelievably exciting. Smaller side, kind of heavyweight, but quicker. Not like Fedor in that way, but very different fighters. But... Similar in the sense that Fedor is probably like a natural middleweight who just kind of fought at heavyweight, but the quickness and his strength really made up for it. Malkin's bigger than that, but, um, you know, built a little differently, but it's a similar kind of thing where he's a little on the smaller side of heavyweight, but he's a great athlete. He's much quicker. He's very powerful. Obviously, as you mentioned, the wrestling background and everything else, he's heavy-handed. He comes forward. Dude, he's a fucking nightmare. He's a nightmare matchup for anybody. So... I think he would do really well. Like, if he was in the UFC, right now I think Tom Aspinall is probably your best heavyweight in the UFC. We don't know that, but there's some reason to believe that anyway. But if Malikin was there, I'd have a little bit more. I would want, I, you would have to see that fight in order to really understand how true that is. Malikin is a fucking hammer. He's a hammer. Luke, we're quickly approaching the fight, uh, the Moreno-Albazi fight for Mexico City. Yep. Any thoughts or analysis for this fight? I know Moreno is coming off of a loss, but I think he should be considered the favorite. The only thing I would say is Moreno has got to be... For this one, Moreno, a lot of times what I've noticed with Moreno, and against Figueredo it worked for different reasons, but he's got a little bit of like, my game is going to be the anti-game that you want. So like, oh, you want to do this, I'm going to have some kind of answer for it. Or... um, um, you want to go for a takedown, I'm going to stuff it, or whatever. Like In other words, I'm going to build my game as a response to what you're doing, which is not inherently wrong, but he does it enough where I thought it cost him a little bit against Pantoja. Also, that fight was wild and crazy, but I think he's got to get a little bit out of that gear where if you start doing that to Albazi, who is a very controlled operator, that could be a problem where you're just kind of waiting around. Like, what's Albazi going to do? I'll negate it. 
Again, that is not inherently a bad strategy. In fact, a lot of times you can get very, very far with that. It, it's all about the right application for the right idea at the right time. But the point I'm trying to make is, I think you get. I think against Albazi, that would be. It's a little bit of a difficult place to be. Um, I think Albazi needs to be, again, a controlled operator who can work behind the jab. He's got good takedowns and good grappling. Negating that's going to be a key part of it. And I think also fighting at kickboxing range. I think the kickboxing range is going to really benefit Moreno. He's got much better, uh, for example, even on on exits and during movement, like what he got against Kaikar of France, right? That's really where I think it's going to be won. So um, not playing response game the whole time, stuffing the takedowns I think is going to be key, and putting the fight at kickboxing range I think is going to be really, really valuable for him. Lots of leg kicking too if he can get it going. Look, I have a recommendation for Room Service Diaries that is combat adjacent. Brody King, he's a vocalist for the hardcore band God's Hate. <laughs> okay. And also an AEW professional wrestler. A little bit of something for you and Brian you can make for an interesting RSD. Duly noted. Duly noted. All right. How do you think about the merits of being formulaic on MK versus innovating with content? Yeah. Some of my favorite bits have been a result of you and BC experimenting with different segments and like the silly MMA court where BC was the judge. Actually, it was Chuck Mindenhall. Also, could we see more co-hosts? Okay, so let me just say this. We're in a current position with MK where it's sort of like a diet version of MK. I think you guys have probably noticed that. Like, we don't have the studio anymore. We're in this kind of in-between space. Can't say much. Can't declare to you when exactly that's going to change, although we have an idea internally. We are cooking in a way where we're the, the plan is to get back to that so, like, what you see currently on MK is only a temporary holdover. Like, the current version of MK is fine. It's just me and BC giving takes on, on, you know, two screen. There's really nothing special about it. Um, the plan is to, to do away with that. Uh, but we have to do a lot to get there. And we're not there yet. I can't really say anything more than that. But... Uh, the point you're bringing up is the experimentation. Once we get to this next stage that we're going, hopefully we're going to get to, which I'm hoping is soon, but I, you know, I I don't exactly have a day for you to to say that. Um, all that will be back in in line. Like, I don't think, yeah, like I want to bring back when we get to our next stage. I want to bring back like the great parts of MK that have worked, but I think there's a lot that needs to be rethought and reconsidered, done away with, added. And this experimentation you're talking about um, is going to be back in full force, for sure. For sure. Um, good question. I often hear that making your passion your job makes it no longer fun anymore. As someone who wants to make my hobby my job someday, would you say it is still worth it? That's a great question. I think about this all the time. I'm not sure. I'm not sure is the answer. Um, I all, I'm a fight fan probably for the rest of my life, no matter what happens, but, and then people always say, oh, if you make your, your passion, your job, you never work a day in your life. It's just total bullshit. That's absolutely not true in any way. Don't believe anybody who's saying that is just either fucking lying or stupid and hasn't thought this through, you know, that's really not true at all. Um, There's a certain attachment that you have to things that you love. Uh, 
that you only have that attachment in the way that you do because of its distance, right? Remember they say never meet your heroes because then you meet them and you're like, oh, this guy's a fucking prick. Why did I ever, why did I ever want to meet this jerk off, you know? Like, uh, it's not to say that you couldn't develop a, a different kind of love or appreciation or perhaps even one that's more profound and lasting. I don't know. But if you have a certain kind of adoration or affection for a hobby, uh, you know, a celebrity, I mean, I don't really think of things in that way, but I'm just trying to be, you know, people like Taylor Swift or whatever. Um, if you change the dynamic of that where now you begin to work for that person or in that industry or for that entity, it will change it. Whatever you had will be destroyed. Could it be rebuilt with something else that's a little bit different, that's a little bit less emotionally fulfilling and it, that's just it right like if it becomes a you take a hobby into a job it's it be, before it wasn't as financially fulfilling now it's much more financially fulfilling but before it was very emotionally fulfilling and now it's not as much emotionally fulfilling you are changing your relationship to it once once it goes from hobby to profession whatever adoration and that emotional connection you had to that once you move into the next stage it will it will destroy that but again, you have to decide if what you build on the other side is worth keeping around. I mean, I've said it before. This is nothing new for me. I, I think most things about MMA suck. <laughs> I mean, not the fights. The fights are great. The fights are getting better all the time. Like, about the fights, I really love MMA. And I think I'll probably always love MMA. But the culture around MMA, like, fucking blows. It's this unregulated sport where the manager's absolutely abuse the fighters where the fighters get paid dick uh there's there's the industry is totally controlled the media is totally captured um it's just a fucking ruinous rotten place right it's awful the kinds of things that get lionized the kinds of people that get lionized the kinds of ideas that pass for like uh, you know valuable or interesting or thoughtful they're all bullshit like it's a it's a gross place um and I don't think I would have felt that way if I hadn't got to work in it. It does not change my view of the fights themselves. It does not change my view of the athletic courage that the fighters show or whatever. It doesn't do that. But all the other shit that I used to think was great about MMA, I don't think it's great. I think it's all pretty awful now. Like this, is the, But it's more financially rewarding. It will change the balance of goods that you had. Some may like that cha that change and be able to maintain it. Some may absolutely detest that change and wish they had back what they had before. I'll say this. There was a time when maybe around 2014 where I was thinking like, could I find a way to really, really train up and get into um, soccer coverage? Now, in the end, I didn't think I could do it. There was too many people too far ahead. I didn't have the requisite knowledge base or the industry connections to make that work. But... Either way, I'm glad I didn't because I think I would find out things about soccer that I hate and it would ruin it for me uh, in that particular case. And so I am glad that I never did that. Um, there's another question about Strickland I'm going to skip because we kind of have already been over it. So I'll go to the other one here. Oops. On the subject of striking development, do you find that boxing provides a better base overall for aspiring fighters? Yes and no. Seeing someone like Taporia move so fluidly and confidently has given me pause for thought. 
Most MMA fighters fundamentally struggle with basic footwork and head movement. That is true. Let alone entering and exiting the pocket. True. How long do you think the boxing-heavy nets of modern MMA will last for, or what could complement such a skill set? For someone like Tapuria, for example, who is boxing-heavy, what could round out his striking game and make him flawless? Nothing can make him flawless. That doesn't exist. But I do believe that boxing provides a very... Um, I have to be very careful with this. I am not in any way, shape, or form... Uh, I'm not an expert on boxing either, but I'm definitely not an expert on kickboxing. My knowledge of kickboxing is relative to the other forms of striking significantly more limited. So take anything I'm about to say with a very big grain of salt. And also different fighting ranges, different fighting weapons, different fighting surfaces change dynamics considerably. But I do not know of another striking sport that puts as much of a premium on defense as boxing. Not just defense, but def not just defense but defense with positioning, defense with timing, um, defense with uh, alignment, angles, and also covering and, you know, whatever. Like on this Pimblet thing, you're going to see um, there's one there's one piece I have where you can see Tony, uh, he slips the punch, and then rather than pivoting out or rolling underneath or whatever, he just comes right back to where he was before and he gets popped for it. I mean, this is, that's not just a thing that Tony does. That's so fucking common. I see that all the time on tape. And, of course, you see it in a boxing match on occasion, but much, 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 much less. Um, and there's a, you know, I saw this stat from Eric McGracken. Did you guys see this? One out of every 5,000 boxing matches led, leads to a death. One out of every 5,000. Think about how many boxing matches get put on in a year. That is... Holy shit, that's a fucking sobering statistic. Dude, you're, you have to have, uh, you know, it's a smaller thing you can attack in terms of targets of opportunity. You have fewer weapons where you can't even backfist in, in uh, boxing. Um, but the reality is the, 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 the premium put on all of the details that go into being able to hit and not get hit, they're just much more robust. The problem is a lot of them, or a good portion of them anyway, do not translate over to MMA. It is hard to roll underneath if you're going to eat a knee, if you're fighting Jalen Turner, and let's say he's got an 8-inch height advantage on you, and you roll underneath, you're going to eat a knee or a head kick potentially, right? So there's a lot of different factors you have to get, um, uh, you have to account for. And no one has, like there's a lot of, like for example, if you went on BJJ Fanatics or Wrestling Fanatics or Striking Fanatics, you can find lots of guys like jiu-jitsu adapted for MMA or wrestling adapted for MMA. And you can find striking adapted for MMA. You have very little on there about specific boxing ways in which to approach range, whatnot, for MMA. You just don't see as much of that. There hasn't been someone who's put those pieces of the puzzle together quite as nimbly because the two industries and the, and the groups are very distinct. It's not the same coaches. It's not the same fans. It's not the same promoters. It's not the same anything. They're very distinct entities. So finding someone who's got requisite overlap in both of those industries is very, very hard to find. Very hard to find. You can find MMA guys who have a lot of respect for boxing and can get some of that right. And you can find boxing guys who you know respect MMA and can understand a little bit of it. But you don't have a whole lot of people who really understand the intersection between the two. Like to me, like a guy like Craig Jones has a real clear understanding of why grappling works and why he stuff he can take from one and really build into the other one. I know he's never fought MMA, but if you know anything about his style, about pinning and Turks and all that kind of stuff, 
it really is a very adapted version of jiu-jitsu for a more modern context that resembles what you see in MMA so much more than what you would in anything else. And I think the fact that Volk has had significant improvement under his tutelage is proof of that. Like, you don't have a guy like that in MMA for boxing. You have just stuff that guys take. No one's woven the in-between there. Um, to me, it's one of the most most under-discovered uh, or under, um, understudied, you know, two forms of combat uh, in terms of that, that, that overlapping space and how you actually navigate the path between them or, you know, one for the other is a better way to put that. Uh, it, we just don't have a whole lot of that yet because these worlds are distinct and there's people don't have the requisite um, knowledge. Uh, it's a good question, man. How much do fighters who have to wear glasses affect their fights and in what ways in relation to styles? I'm thinking of Charles Oliveira or Bruce Mitchell. We mean Bryce Mitchell, who both appear to need strong glasses but are very elite. Well, Oliveira, I think it used to be a problem. I don't think it's a problem anymore. I believe he had that corrected with LASIK surgery, I believe, um, some kind of eye surgery. For Bryce, I'm not sure exactly the extent of his problem. I don't know what it is. I would say it's a pretty significant disadvantage. I don't really understand how guys are able to do it because um, even in a grappling context, like your gripping matters, like how blurry are some. I mean, the point is if you, you, you some level of eye uh, your eyes are checked. Like you, there's a certain level that you can't go beyond. So there's partly that. Like there's no one legally blind who's fighting an MMA at the UFC by coincidence, not by coincidence. But what I would say is, um, I, I I would imagine it's a significant hurdle. I don't, I haven't talked to anybody enough to really give you a great answer on that one, unfortunately. Any updates on new uh, content series MK is going to try this year? You guys got to hang on. When I tell you that we're cooking, man, believe me, I'm <laughs> believe me or not. Um, but we're cooking. We're cooking. We just have to. There's a lot that's involved. <laughs> once once it's all done, and we can go back and tell you the steps, I think you'll understand. It's it's more than I realized it was going to be. Um, I now have a better sense about what's ahead, but it's a lot, dude. It's a lot. All right. Good question. Luke, you mentioned that one of the potential factors in flyweight's lack of popularity is its lack of finishes. That's true. Well, that's, that's my opinion anyway. But I wanted to know why are finishes considered such an attractive point by casual viewers? Heavyweight has more finishes on average, I can imagine. But I think overall, many can agree that the action quotient on average is more entertaining for flyweight fights. Why do you think there's more emphasis by casual viewers on finishes rather than consistent action? I mean, I mean, you're sort of answering your question for yourself. But listen, if you ever talk to anyone who's a casual fan, what do they say every fucking time? And we've had, we, we, we all know them. God bless them. It might be some of your family members. It might be some of your friends, right? They all say the same thing, which is um, a big finish, a big knockout is very memorable. It is satisfying. Uh, again, I'm speaking for the casual fan. And I'm the, to the hardcore fan to some extent too, but the casual fans love a big knockout. They love a big punch. They love something super memorable, right? And you might say, well, the action in the flyweight fight was better. Like, these two guys were sloppy. It just ended up in a KO. The thing that they, I always hear from the casual fans is, yeah, but look how small they are. You have to understand, man. Casual fans don't have a dislike of flyweight because they have good reasons. 
right? That's not really the argument. The argument is not, oh, like their palate for fighting is so great. No, they're, they have terrible fucking ideas. Oh, well, you know, it's not that fun to watch Mighty Mouse. Like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, do you know how great he is? Like, it's, the answer is they don't. They don't. They see a real small guy, and in their mind, they have no fucking idea how good he is. And they think, okay, fighting is about prowess. It's about muscles. It's about a big punch. It's about being menacing. It's about talking shit. Like, that's what they understand fighting to be because their only frame of reference for fighting is the shit they've seen in the schoolyard or the street. That's it. That's all they know. So they think a big punch from a big menacing guy, like, that's fighting. These little guys, what is that? That's just two boring-ass little, you know, field mice wrestling over a... Uh, uh, a crumb of food when in reality it's, it, you know, I'm not saying a big guy with a big punch is not a thing that we all don't gravitate to on some level, but their understanding of like what makes fighting good is not, is not especially attuned well. And that's just the reality you have to live with. It's like, dude, why do people like, I'm not like Jake Paul is out there actually trying to do things the right way. At least seems now he is anyway, after he made a bunch of money. But, like, you know, I'm not mad at him for trying to, like, lead his own life and, and get money and everything else like that. But, like, people who can watch those fights and be as entertained or more entertained than watching Bud Crawford or Naoya Inouye or whatever, hardcore fight fans won't be that way. But a lot of casual fans might be that way. They just don't have an understanding of fighting where the things that actually matter matter to them. They have their own set of preferences that are guided by their own ignorance that leads them to places to, to, to like dumb shit. Someone writes, the Strickland video is the heaviest shit I've seen in the sport in some time. It's truly meaningful. I, I, you know, I, I'll just add, lastly on that one, that's like, it's like overdue. It's overdue. Um... This whole thing about like posturing, about like, you know, strength is shitting on everyone and strength is posturing and strength is fuck this guy and that guy's this slur and this guy's that slur and all this shit. Like, dude, it's it's so nakedly these are broken, damaged people who do it. <laughs> like it's It's so obvious. Until you actually see it laid out it, and you've never watched someone have to struggle with it, maybe it wasn't so obvious to you, but then you, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not glad that Sean Strickland suffered and was brought to emotional disturbance on the, on Theo Vaughn's podcast. That's not my point, but I'm glad that there was this moment where not just there, he was like, oh, you never talk about a man's wife. And then it's like, dude, you've been, you know, you've been relentless uh, in doing that. But this moment where you can watch where all of that, worldview actually comes from and you can watch it happen all in a straight line i think some people needed to see that i think some people needed to see that um let's see i can get a couple more in here look i oh, here we go look i remember ufc 100 and 200 and those cards were memorable and were stacked to the rafters do you feel like the oversaturation of ufc events will impact the quality of the UFC 300 card, and do you think we'll see the UFC reducing the number of events per year to focus on quality over quantity? No, no. I think you're going to see a focus on uh, media rights fees and whatever that demands, and if that demands more content, then that's exactly what you're going to get. 
Uh, dude, two ninety nine might end up being better than three hundred. One ninety nine, by the way, was a good card, but it wasn't better than well, two hundred ended up being a bit of a fuck up in the end. But even then, two hundred was still a bigger card. I don't really remember. What was UFC ninety nine? I don't even remember that. Hold on, UFC ninety nine. What the fuck was that? I cannot even remember that. Oh, Rich Franklin and Vanderlei Silva. Yeah, that one sucked. Uh, that was in Cologne, Germany. Uh, who was on that card? Rich Franklin beat Vanderlei Silva. Kane Velasquez beat Czech Congo. That was actually a tougher fight for Kane. Mirko Krokop beat Mustafa Al Turk. Uh, Mike Swick defeated Ben Saunders. Spencer Fisher defeated Cal Uno. Spencer Fisher, remember him? And then Dan Hardy defeated uh, barely Marcus Davis. Who else was on that card? Yeah, a bunch of Brits and some European dudes. Um, yeah. One, one, uh, one, excuse me, 299 might end up being better than 300. I mean, again, let's see what they come up with. Let's see what they come up with. They might get a Brock. They might get a Ronda. Somebody we're not thinking of. Some kind of name that's like out there. That's kind of crazy, kind of cool. Who knows? In which case, I do think it'll be a big deal. But like I was talking with someone over the, the over Twitter today, and they were saying, because I was saying, I think, I think 300 will be a good card no matter what. Maybe even a great card. But I don't think it's going to be like this next level, oh my fucking God card. Because I don't know how it can be. There's so many other names distributed in so many other places. And if you look at like 100, what made 100 so big? Main event, biggest star in the sport at that time, Brock Lesnar in a heavyweight unification in a rematch against a heated rival. That was your main event. Your co-main was GSP, one of the other biggest stars in the sport, in a title uh, fight against Tiago Alves. And you may not know it, but at that time, Tiago Alves was a motherfucker at that time. That was a huge fight. That was really, really hotly anticipated. And then you had Bisping and Dan Henderson fight, not for a title, but they were the coaches coming off of a still then popular television show like it had a lot going for it at the time and you know you don't have the biggest star in the sport on the card connor's not fighting it so that's out you don't have any kind of rematch unification for a major title that i'm aware of happening on this although i guess depending on how things go that could potentially change but even then it was still a unification with the biggest star you don't have any of that um there's just a lot of the same missing pieces and 200 had something like that, which was I think was supposed to be the rematch between John and DC. It got all fucked up. We all know the story there. Brock fought on that card and blah blah blah. Amanda Nunes and whatever. And that that thing got messed up a little bit. But three hundred, I think they just have too many other things going on. So I don't think it's gonna be a bad card. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be a bad card. But people want three hundred to be like holy fucking shit. And I just don't think the UFC uh, can as as much of a roster as they have, and they've got a better one than anyone. I just don't think they can pull that off. I don't think they can pull that off. All right. If you got any donations, we'll get to them now. If not, that's cool. But uh, let's see what you got. All right. New member from Namesake. What's up, man? Appreciate you. Do you From Kangol. Nice dog, by the way. Do you believe jet fuel can melt steel beams? Are you asking me if I think that 9-11 was an inside job? I don't. I don't. <coughs> Ryzen put on a sold-out New Year's Eve event with 23,000 people. Yes, they did. It was an awesome event. They could level up by adding fighters from one's inevitable collapse. True. Why doesn't MK talk about them? Uh, Because no one would give a shit among our audience. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate you becoming a member. Double-check your mic and camera. Thank you. That should be good. Thank you for being a member for so long. Happy New Year, big dog. Been a month since any members only. Con- I know. I'm, 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 I understand. Don't leave us hanging solo in the VIP section at the Shack. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Good call, though. Appreciate you keeping me honest. All right. 
as a self-proclaimed atheist, it seems hypocritical, hypocritical or you to use terms like thank God or I'm blessed. How do you reap to this? Just semantics, just semantics. I mean, I'm not like, uh, I mean, I guess I am an atheist. I, I don't know what happens when we die. So I guess it probably puts me more firmly agnostic at this point. Um, I don't know what happens to us when we die. It is entirely possible that there are, who, who is to say, not me. Um, if that's a better way to describe it, but, uh, yes, mostly just semantics. All right. F this is to Othello, but then to me, how harshly should we judge the California state athletic commission typically respected in hardcore circles for approving power slap and citing the one doctor on earth who doesn't think CTE is real, uh, pretty hardcore, but at the same time, um, okay. If you were running the California state athletic commission, what would you do? You have the UFC asking you, and Bare Knuckle was on the line as well, which they're not in the business of, but it was part of it too. But in this particular case, they're asking you to do and legalize power slap. By the way, it turns out from the reporting of Zach Arnold, they had private meetings with the regulators there to like plead their case for this thing to come up. But understand something. For the most part, California doesn't need any other promoter. If there's one state in the union that doesn't need another promoter, it is typically California because they have such a hotbed of uh, boxing and MMA that they can make enough money without any one particular promoter visiting them. But um, if the UFC were to like not go back to California hardly at all, and then, remember, it's part of the TKO, and then also WWE decides to go there a lot less as well, this is a significant problem for the California State Athletic Commission. Whereas they could just legalize power slap and then... You're going to get these businesses to then make more regular stops in the state. This is much better for the state because, again, commissions, even ones in California, which I typically like, this idea that they're just watchdogs. They're watchdogs to an extent, but they're also completely captured from a regulatory standpoint. And they are also kind of arms of the tourism, business tourism industry anyway, where like part of their job, whether it's written or not, is to help facilitate maximum revenue to the state. Um, by creating a friendly environment for, you know, above board promoters to do their business. So if TKO can go in there and say, not only will we like not bring UFC, but we're not going to bring anything related to what we do with professional wrestling to your state, at least, you know, minimally anyway, um, that could be devastating for them. So I think that they probably had to make a choice for, a, if not survival, um, their, their well-being. What I would add though is, what that tells me is having these like, monopolistic entities team up in this way. I, I don't know if WWE can be classified as a monopoly, but certainly UFC can. They have such control and such power that they can force regulators to do things that they otherwise probably would never do. And that's a pernicious kind of power that I don't think private firms in any industry should have. Private firms should not have so much power that they can change government regulation to suit them in a way that... Um, uh, goes against typical regulatory standard. Jesus, my buddy died in an accident just before Christmas, right up the road from my house. It, it's on my way to work, and it fucks with me driving by it. Any advice as to how to deal with this? Jesus, man. Happy New Year. Um, Man, you'd be surprised. I get a lot of these kinds of messages. Um... Not just from people being like, um, I used to get messages from people who had had a family member who suffered suicide, but now I get them from like all different kinds of angles. And I typically don't ever know what to say. I read something about grief though over the break that kind of stuck with me. Uh, grief and grief is love 
with nowhere to go. Um, and that's sort of like, it sounds like what you and what a lot of folks in a similar situation would be feeling. You have this love for this person who is no longer there to receive it. And, and because it has nowhere to go, it becomes extraordinarily difficult burden to carry. Um, I don't know what to tell people who have suffered substantial loss in this way any, any more than what I would know, um, be, any more than what I could prescribe based on my own situation. And I've said it a million times, which is um, to the extent getting counseling is important, having a social circle is important, maintaining routine is important, taking care of your health is important, literally like making a habit of it even when you don't want to. But if you've got grief, and again, love that's got nowhere to go, um, you have to wrestle with that. You have to you have to work with that. You have to do something with that. Uh, otherwise, it will continue, and understandably, um, it's not so easy, but it will eat you. It will eat you alive. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, Happy New Year. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the holidays. I did. How would things have played out if Dana and Tito actually boxed? Would this happening have impacted future deals like with ESPN because of reputation? No. No, I don't think it would have been a big deal. I think Tito probably would have won and, you know, Dana would have made a good... It, it mattered as much as it did in, in terms of happening or not happening. I don't, I don't think it would have made a big difference one way or the other. Luke, why did you put Brock Lesnar as an option for 300? Why would he even fight? Because he's a whore for money. Also, you definitely watched the Tyron Woodley tape. I, okay, so I didn't know what it was, and then I was like, Tyron Woodley did what? And there's all these like SpongeBob memes and shit, and I'm like, what is this? And then I clicked on the video, and I was like, oh, okay. So I got about three seconds or so, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm good on that. I don't know what happened beyond the first three or whatever, so seconds. Um, don't know how that got online? Don't want to know how that got online. I'm good to go on not learning anything more about that if I can avoid it at all. Fuck, uh, thoughts on McGregor versus Immigrants News Cycle. I still haven't kept up with this one. I know you guys have been asking about this for months. It has just not been a top of my... Can I be honest with you guys? You know what's at top of my mind? And I mean this absolutely sincerely. And you're, you're going to laugh at me and, or whatever. Um, it's what's happening in Gaza. It is so morally horrifying to me. What has happened there? Dude, every day, all I do is read about what's going on over there. Um, it's so fucking. I I die. I don't even know what to say about it anymore. I can't. I can't believe my country is funding this. I mean, I guess I can now, but it's still horrifying to me. I can't. I can't believe what the world is allowing to happen. I can't. It is so disturbing so beyond fucking disturbing that really all of my aside from my professional and then like you know personal responsibilities like any other time that I've got I'm unfortunately too, I, mean, I shouldn't be as consumed by it as I am but holy fucking shit man it is really is it is it is it is such a shattering moment for me um that I don't even know what to I don't even know how to I'm I'm, I'm having trouble wrestling with it Luke, you once said you didn't get a cut of your MK merch sales. It's true. With your new contract, do you get a cut of the merch sales now? Nope. Hoping my merch purchases support you and BC. <laughs> they, they're good for the show. Don't get me wrong. They're good for the show, but we don't get an individual cut of them. 
You seem in great spirits today. This is your year. I fucking hope so, man. I will tell you what, guys. Can I be honest with you for just a second? I haven't posted on Instagram or TikTok hardly at all. Um, I didn't necessarily. I've got a couple of like New Year's resolutions in my head. I feel like I'm at a real weird spot in my life where I don't know even what to say anymore on some of those platforms or what kind of value add I should be offering. I'm not a young person who's like, you know, they've got a certain kind of newness to this whole process to them. And also like they haven't said as much to the world. I've been saying shit to the world for almost 20 years. Um, I've been, I'm in, I'm in a weird place, not a bad one exactly, but I think I'm in the middle of stages. I'm in the, I'm in the middle spot where whatever is coming next, I haven't quite, um, I haven't got there yet. And it's been a real weird, it's been a real weird moment. But the reason why you think I'm in great spirits is because I had some time, dude, all I want to do is like spend time with my family and read and like go enjoy life like a normal person. And I got to two weeks basically to do that. It was fucking great, man. It was fucking great. I remember when my brother lived in England, he told me that at the time, this was 2004. He told me that it may have been even, it may be more now. I think I brought this up before. It was like government mandated six weeks paid vacation. Like, holy fuck. You know? And it's not like, again, I'm not hanging shingles on a roof in July. I'm just saying like what it does for the spirit to spend time with family, what it does for the spirit to just take in life, even when it's, you know, nothing especially interesting going on. It's really, really good for you. And I just don't do enough of it typically day to day. And, uh, man, I don't know. I'm in a weird place. Again, I'm not complaining exactly. I want to be, I want to be, but I am between things. I am between things and I don't exactly know, how I, the the picture of what's next has not exactly been revealed to me um, yet, and I'm hoping over time it will be. Reviewing to the New York the NY MK mailbag episode, do you know if Sergeant Tice is related to former Minnesota Vikings head coach Mike Tice? So it was spelled differently. The Tice that I had at boot camp was T H E I S, but he pronounced it Tice. So no, I don't think they were in any way related. And that guy was a, he was a good Marine, but he was a fucking shitbox. He made my life miserable. Uh, all right. Uh, Bleacher Report, I'm assuming that's what you mean. Just broke the news that Dr- Draymond Green is training again in preparation for his return back. <laughs> I wonder which training they mean exactly. Fucking elbows. Ludicrous. Throw them bows. Draymond Green is like the Sergio Ramos of the NBA. Just if he's on your team and he's just elbowing the shit out of everyone and like, you know, getting thrown out of games, you'll love him. But everyone else in the league fucking hates him, you know. Luke, what's your thoughts on Real Madrid and Barcelona and are they continued pursuit of a European Super League? Would you be in favor of that over a Champions League? I mean, listen, they're trying to find a way to both take some Saudi money and then compete so they can have more money. So that, especially if you're Barcelona and Madrid, you're not losing. Like, here come the Saudis with a bunch of money. Premier League already makes more money in media rights fees than the Spanish do with their league. Like, there's a lot of ways in which they can be economically overpowered uh, that they're trying to fight. I'm not telling you that the Super League is the answer because there are obviously a ton of problems with it, even in this sort of modern new version that they have offered, Um, which, by the way, many clubs still don't want to join. But they're not going to stop until they figure this out, right? I hope everyone understands that. 
if they're at an economic disadvantage to any Saudi offers and they could lose potential stars that way, if they're, they, if they're always going to be behind the gun for some of these, and I know that, you know, Madrid and Barcelona are institutions. And so they're not the same stage or same places like, you know, Atletico or fucking, you know, uh, Rayo Vallecano or whatever, but, um, they, they are behind some of the other, well, just what, what the premier league money is absurd. As long as there's a disparity and they're an institution for uh, a very proud institution for both culture and country, they're going to try to find a way to figure that out. That that's not going to stop. Maybe it won't work with this particular effort or even the next one, but there will be one as they continue to push that will get that, that, that will get them there. Copa America is hosting games in Vegas the week of International Fight Week. Ooh, do you think that was a factor? Uh, could they build a card around teams playing in Vegas, Brazil, Jamaica? Ecuador? I don't think so. I doubt it. Vegas is just much more becoming a destination. It always was, obviously. But now that you've got T-Mobile, now that you've got Allegiant, now that you've got the Sphere, dude. When I was there for, uh, it was either it was either the Benavides fight week, Benavides plant, or it was the Canelo Charlo one. It was one of the two. And I, I get there, and at the same week, it was March Madness. It was uh, obviously the the boxing fights, whichever one they were. Taylor Swift was there, and these were all happening within like a couple of miles of each other. And by the way, there were there were like there was a couple of games in Vegas that were happening at that time. I mean, it's just so much. You know, it's just a, a not just a destination, but it has so much capacity for trade shows, for sporting events, for you name it. Um, I just think it's probably coincidental, to be perfectly honest. Happy New Year, Happy New Year, Greg. After a decade plus in hospitality, I'm finally looking to transition into something else. Can you briefly go over some of the pros and cons you found in remote work? Uh, you may not shower for a couple of days. That's a con. I, I, I'm not one of these guys who thinks that there's like a ton of cons to remote work. I think it's actually been great for me. But the, it's the same. You've, if you've watched this chat, you've heard me give this advice a couple of times. The only thing I would really, really very much caution is you should have some kind of activity that pulls you out of the door. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm going to go set up at a coffee shop today. That's not the end of the world. But that's, not, that's, not, that's fine, but that's not really all that great. What I mean is like, when I first started working from home, I was still training jujitsu, so I still had a social community there to go to, right? That kind of a thing. Or, um, you know, when I was working with MK and I was working from home, I was still once a week going to studio or flying to all this other stuff where I was still being pulled out of the house. I had some kind of community responsibility pulling me out of the house for other things. That was a big one. And the other one was I don't work in my – where I sleep. I sleep upstairs. I work here. And they are distinct. And I think people who don't do that um, could get into trouble. So you have to find ways where, like, what is pulling you out of the house? How often? Like, where you have to get out to go do it, right? Because so, if you don't have to get out of the house to go work, that's okay. But you should have some other things that are getting you out of the house. And you should have a separate place for work. Those are the two things that would really kind of spotlight as significantly important. What is your favorite discontinued food? This was the one that had me uh, laughing my balls off when I was high uh, on MK. Um, favorite discontinued food? Ooh, uh, Mountain Dew Code Red. Do they still? No, no, they still make that. But they had Diet Mountain Dew Code Red. That was my jam. Terrence asks, do they dust off the 145 belt to make Ronda versus Tate bigger? Doubt it, but maybe. Also, why the sudden hate on Ronda's skills? Is it the new fans' perception and not seeing her in her prime? 
No, Ronda's skills were significant, but they were a moment in time, and um, they were a moment in time that has passed. I think that she brought an excitement to the game, and a sort of, frankly, I mean this like in terms of like the the throws she was landing. There was a certain violence, but also a certain kind of like almost beauty to it. Uh, but it required her to have a leap and a gap over her opponents that had both physical leaps in terms of like you know. She was a lifelong athlete. Her opponents were not. And then more to the point, the women's game has some catching up to do to be equal to the men's, but it has caught up. It has made a lot of progress since her time. And, you know, her striking was really never that great. So um, I understand that it might look like they're being shitty to her, and maybe they are. I haven't seen everything fans have said, but they're right to be, not dismissive, but to be uh, observant that, you know, that was a, during a certain point in time. Over the years, we've seen Dana unable to make some big fights at their peak of their fame, like John versus uh, Francis, yep, Connor, Mazadal. Is it, well, okay, but uh, is it because the UFC wouldn't make profit for those UFC events? No, I, they, they do. They might make, they might make all their money back on the gate. Um, they're, I mean, we'd have to go through each individual one. Brock versus Fedor, they couldn't sign Fedor, that's one. GSP versus Silva. Um, they could never really find a time where it was working for either guy. There was issues about what weight to do it in. Someone wanted it to be at a one weight class. Someone wanted it to be a catch weight. There was an issue there. They let it go. John versus Francis. John was kind of out or whatever the fuck he was doing. Then Francis leaves. They don't want to co-promote. It's just sort of a different... I don't know if there's a common denominator there, but it's certainly not because they wouldn't make money. As someone who lost a parent to suicide, I lost my dad five years while I was uh, five years ago. I think you mean while I was eighteen. He was the fourth in his family. How did you carry on? I've done five years of therapy and still have a dark outlook on the world and future. That therapy does not help. Um, Jesus, how did I carry on? Fuck me. I'm trying to think. So I was twenty three. So this past October was twenty years since my mom died. So. What did I do? I talked about all the bad things I did, right? All the drinking and everything. I went to therapy as well, which, you know, took a long time to for me to get anything out of that. Uh, five years it didn't take, but... Um, um, there came a point where I realized that and I've said this to you guys before, but I'll make it one more time, where, again, the analogy doesn't quite work. But I remember feeling like, you know, you're just sort of longing for this person and what they provided in your life. And, like, you know, I've said this before, like, you know, my dad's not, like, going to shower me with praise. He, he, he's a great dad, don't misunderstand me, but he's not the kind of guy to, like, verbally give a lot of that. Whereas my mom was, you know, and so, like, you lose that whole cheerleading aspect to your to your life. But I said this before, it had, at some point it kind of felt to me like, I don't know what it's like to lose a limb, you know, imagine losing an arm, a leg. And you, you hear about like phantom leg syndrome or whatever. It, it, at some point I realized that like, if I don't think I'm, the arm is not, let's say I had, um, I'd lost an arm. Like the, the realization I kind of came to was I'm, I'm not going to get the arm back. Like the arm is gone 
And there is no substitute for it. There's nothing else. There's no prosthetic. There's no nothing. Like, I'm not getting the fucking arm back. Um, at some point, though, it's not. It's it's less that, like, oh, did I want that to define me? Maybe a little bit of that. But it was more to the point that, like, um, I knew that even if I wasn't getting it back, there was a life I could live where happiness was involved. Um, and it took all the other processes I was undergoing so that I could get to that point. Uh, you know, it's not just some kind of like wake up and like, oh, now I see it differently, like some kind of magic trick. It's not that. But once I sort of put it in those terms, like, you know, you're you're just not getting the arm back. It's not you are living without an arm the rest of your life. And that will be difficult. There will be difficulty associated with that. Um, but I did not ultimately feel like it was only difficulty that I had to live with. It was only those things. And that not having the arm was the only way to be process everything that was happening to me. Um, I, I don't know what to tell you in terms of how to get yourself to that place. But once you do, you're home free. Not home free because you're always going to feel it. But you'll you'll be able to like regroup in a way that I think I was ultimately able to regroup where, you know, I'm missing an arm, so to speak. Um, but I'm all right. I'm all right. Now that Showtime's done, can you tell us what Rogan told you? <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, also, what's up with BC's man crush on Ortega? He's just horny for him. I don't know. Habib has a more recent win than him. Does he really? Fuck me. I didn't know that. Um, I will tell the Rogan story eventually. It's just, here's what, here's what's going to happen. If I tell you what he told me, it's just going to cause a fucking firestorm of controversy. And I just don't feel like dealing with it. I just don't really feel like dealing with it. So I'm just going to keep it to myself. Uh, what do you think about the, about anarcho-capitalism, libertarian, and have you seen what's happening in Argentina? Yeah, with Millet. I have not followed that super closely. I did see one thing he was going to do about liberalizing, uh, or I should say, not privatizing, but he was opening up some, um, I mean, he appears to be doing some horrible shit, but one thing he was doing that I thought was good, one, one thing, was he was changing the airline such that you could get uh, more carriers to Argentina uh, both internationally and more flights domestically within Argentina by opening up who could offer flights under what conditions, which seemed to me actually long overdue. Um, I don't think much of anarcho-capitalism. I don't think anybody really should. <coughs> I don't know if he's exactly... I mean, anarcho-capitalism is like, you know, there's barely a state function at all. I don't think he's exactly promoting that, but what he is promoting is a substantial... I mean, dude, what were they going to say? more uh, Peronism is really going to get them to the next place. Like, it's just not a winning electoral strategy. But then you elect a guy who looks like a, you know, 1970s Austin Power knockoff porn star, and it's like, well, here we go, Argentina. Please share any methods which helped you learn Spanish. Jesus. Um, I've made decent progress after four months learning Hindi, but fluency seems unattainable. Unattainable. Yeah, it's been four months. Who are you, Oppenheimer? Did you guys see Oppenheimer taught himself Dutch in six weeks? <laughs> okay. Well, if you're Robert Oppenheimer, you can do that. But for the rest of us mortals, uh, you cannot. So, um, dude, 
people write me about this all the time. Hey, how do you get better at Spanish? Very simply, practice all the time and talk to people who speak Spanish. That's it. And when I say practice, you can listen to Spanish songs. You can practice saying you can do, you know, online games or, you know, any kind of lesson plan that you might have, right? Conjugating verbs or, you know, whatever, whatever it ends up being for you. Um, I, 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 by the way, I, I pay for the Spanish speaking tier on YouTube uh, TV. So I get, I get, I get like ESPN Deportes, I get Fox Deportes, I get RCN, which is the Colombian television. I get, how do you say it? CNN, which is the Spanish CNN, uh, which is real different than the American one. I don't watch that one too often because it's, I don't really, it's mostly like covers Mexican news, which I'm not necessarily all that interested in, but I'm just trying, it's, I don't even care what the fuck they're talking about. I just want to hear them talk because they're so much clearer and easier to understand. They speak a little fast, and they do use formal language, whether it's RSANA or whoever, um, but it's easier to understand. You get um, Sony Cine. You get that one on there. You get uh, you get a bunch of different ones on there um, where it's just, depending on what you're looking for, like between the sports and the news, it's just a lot of Spanish that um, I'm exposed to all the time. And I, have, I listen to a lot of Spanish music. Obviously, there's a lot of Spanish spoken in my house. I'm able to practice whenever I want. Like, that's what you have to do. You just have to practice all the time. It's like, how do you get good at jujitsu? You have to do it. <laughs> that's, that's it. There's, there's no magic. There's no magic. You just have to do it. That, the magic is on the other side of the work that you're not doing. You know. <coughs> Favorite athlete of all time? When I was a kid, it was probably Michael Jordan. Maybe Bo Jackson. I was a big Nolan Ryan fan when I was a kid, the pitcher. Um, I don't know who it would be anymore. Can we get you at your local gym having some explaining and demonstrating a move from a fight on you for your TikTok, kind of like what Senko does? Yeah, but I don't go to a MMA gym anymore. Um, so not out of the question, but not a regular thing. I could do it, but not a regular thing. Why the constant boxing is dead talk, even when boxing is having great years with historical unifying pound-for-pound pound stars and fights? Because casuals don't know what the fuck they're talking about. It's like boxing had a phenomenal 2023, a great 2023. Now, it may come back to earth in 2024, I don't know. But again, why do dumbasses say dumbass shit? That's what, They don't know anything else. Here's my guy, Ant. I'm not a casual, and I don't care for flyweights. They are too small to hurt each other. Plus, they look creepy. All right, well, maybe you just have a bad fight palette, Ant. You ever thought about that? Maybe you just like bad shit? I don't know if that's true or not, but listen, not everything is going to be for everybody else, right? Not a, some flyweight fights bore me too, right? But at the same time, I think the broader point is true that, like, casual fans are going to have a measurement about what matters to them that will have some overlap with what a more knowledgeable fan would have, but there's going to be major differences between them as well. Luke, what, if any, fallout has there been from your Twitter exchange with Justin Gaethje from a few months back? Nothing I'm aware of. Always hope for an RSD with Gaethje. Well, you can throw that shit out the window. I mean, I, I'm not the one who holds a grudge. I didn't know he was holding a grudge. You, better to ask him. I don't know. You know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say. That's a question for him, man. 
Do you think because of Dana's actions last New Year's that he feels he can't punish UFC fighters? Yes. Or, more to the point, if he doesn't punish them, he can sort of set a ground, like a, like an established order where it's like, we, well, no one gets punished for this kind of stuff. Like, we just don't do that here, you know. Spoke of divorced handoffs recently. Worst I remember witnessing my mom and dad each grabbing one of my arms and sisters and having a tug of war. Oh, I did that one too, buddy. I did the tug of war. I did the tug of war. I did the tug of war outside of a courtroom. How about that one? That was a fucking fun one where now, you know, all of the court officiants have to get involved and like, here comes security. I did that one. Dude, I did fucking shouting matches. I did one where, you know, one of my parents was trying to break down the door of the other one. Like, dude, I, I mean, it's just, if you guys have never done the divorced handoff, oh, it sucks. It's tough, man. Like, it's very, very difficult. It's difficult for the for the parents. It's difficult for the kids. It's, it's just, my recommendation is to anyone who is a divorced parent, do your best to just swallow your pride and not make that awful for your kid. Easier said than done, I know. But golly dude that shit is terrible and what i mean by divorce handoff is um time time to exchange custody so-and-so's got them for the weekend and you got to hand them off and you know when they're teenagers it's not that big of a deal but when they're like eight or nine dude it's so awful it's so awful all right if ufc 300 is feeling a bit empty couldn't they move other scheduled fights onto it eg o'malley cheeto happy holidays they could, and they end up, they might end up doing that, but then again, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. But it might happen. It might happen. Look, I saw a segment on Daniel Cormier's channel with Ben Askren, and Ben was saying he would come out of retirement for Masvidal, I think is what you mean to say. How do you think that fight would go now? Possible UFC 300 bout? Um, I don't know what kind of condition Ben is in. Ben had a hip replacement after he retired. It could, look, it could look like the Colby fight. Maybe Ben gets knocked out again. I don't really know what kind of condition Ben's in. I don't have a significant degree of interest in that fight at all. Do you think Connor's behavior and career influenced other fighters like Colby and Gary to behave in the way that they do? I don't know, you know, to what extent those guys were influenced by Connor, more so Gary than Colby. Yeah, probably there is something to be said for that, um, for sure. But I think just pinning it on Connor as like the explanation to me seems a little bit simplistic. Thoughts on Aljo's take on Sport BJJ? Yeah, I don't have much agreement with him. I understand the source of his frustration. I didn't like necessarily what that guy was doing, but it was part of the rule set. Um, if you don't like the rule set, don't engage with the rule set. Uh, easier for me to say, you know. And I think Aljo's a talented grappler, and again. I didn't necessarily like butt scooting either, but if that's what you're going to engage with, then you have to play by the terms by which you engaged. Um, yeah. Here's Christian saying, same here, Lug. Oh, we got the fight on the kids, so better guy. If people only knew half of what is happening in Gaza, my heart is breaking every day. Yeah, man, it's just... It is so absolutely morally horrifying. It's one of these moments where it just shatters everything you thought you knew about anything in the world. Um, yeah. Grief never stops. Today's my grandma's birthday. Rest in peace. Yeah, man. Thanks for all your content, Luke. Yeah, sorry about that, man. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it just keeps going. For your mental health, take a break from the news on Gaza. I wish I could, dude. I really wish I could. I cannot. I cannot fucking do that. I don't know why I cannot do that, but I cannot do that. I cannot do that. Also, it sort of connects me to my mom, too. Like, my mom had a lot of crazy ideas and shit I never agreed with. And, 
you know, there was a lot that she said that was just not true. But, dude, if there was one fucking thing she has been right about since the moment she told me about it, it was the plight of the Palestinians. And it was always, always, always top of mind for her. So maybe I'm just carrying that on, you know, in a way that maybe I necessarily shouldn't be. But, ugh, it's tough. UFC 300 canvas color prediction. Great question. Mustard gold again or huge agree about ongoing and early war crimes. Yeah. Um, mustard gold. I didn't mind the piss gold. I really didn't. I didn't mind it. I know a lot of folks hated it in real time, whatever. I'm not saying it worked, but I I, I didn't hate it. Um, I bet they don't change that up too much, right? Because they got into deep shit about it last time. They might go with like a lighter yellow. I don't. I, I think they probably keep it the same. I really do. But I think what they'll do is they'll have more lights, like, like a light show, and maybe they'll have like live performers like they did from when um, Connor fought Chad Mendez. Thank you, D1. All right, polling results. Uh, Sean Strickland going too far and then saying, talking about his childhood, is it too far? Sean's a hypocrite, 47%. I feel bad for Sean, 27 Sean's right, 14%. Other thought right below 10%. <coughs> Yeah, I mean, Sean is a hypocrite, and also I do feel bad for him. Not for the recent stuff, but for what happened to him to begin with. All right, let's pump through these. Thank you again. Thoughts on Mayweather Pacquiao at Rise in 2024? Boy, the fight that nobody asked for. I uh, went through a similar childhood to Strickland. and went to therapy. The internal family system worked for me. Would love to see your take on the philosophy one day. I don't know much about that. The internal family system? I do not know what that is. Um, I can look into it, but I have never heard of that. So if it worked for you, though, I am very, very glad because no child should have to go through that. Uh, all right, what would you constitute as horrible shit? My worst problem with Sergio... What? I don't know what the fuck this person's asking. He's responsible for fucking stealing all of the savings people had in private pension month? You mean... I, 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 Nacho, I do not know exactly what you're talking about here. I got to be honest with you. Um, perhaps I'm misunderstanding something. Talk about Sergio Ramos? Did he steal people's private pension fund money? I don't, I don't know anything about that. Maybe I should, but I don't. Um, I wonder if Arab states will have any lasting good opinion toward them due to the sport washing once their oil money dries up. Uh, well, considering that the uh, the West has surrendered any and all versions of moral authority, um, <laughs> I don't know if any of this is going to matter one way or the other when it's all over, to be perfectly honest with you. Happy New Year, big dog. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for your content. Wishing your family well. I wish you well. Uh, just the same, my friend. And then last but not least, five lubed up Mazagatis versus Uberim TLC match. What is TLC? Tender loving care. Oh, no, no, no. I know that one, actually. Tables, ladders, and chairs. I think I got that one right, actually. Who wins? Uh, I give it to the Mazagatis, actually. Five of them. No, you know what? Uberim was a motherfucker. Michael Schiavello one time had a quote about Uberim that was great, and it was, uh, you could screen a movie on his back. Uh, and this was, this was when he fought that big Korean dude in Dream. He knocked him out with like a single punch. I forget who he was. Uh, it was like Taehyung Bang or something like that. Yeah, that was a great quote. All right, we're done here for the day. Hey, everyone, thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. 
Uh, many of more of these to come. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Thumbs up if you haven't already. Subscribe if you haven't already. You can email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. We'll change up the thumbnail and we'll get the uh, we'll get the audio up on the podcast. Look out for the patty breakdown coming ASAP. And until next time, boys and girls, stay frosty. <laughs>